Welcome to Behind the Mirror, a place where students in an online program can get all the little things you can only get sitting with your teacher behind the mirror. Um, today, I have Eric Greenleaf, who wrote a, two books that I've read um, and is a really, really fascinating therapist. So Eric, why don't you give us a little bit of a brief overview of um, your big idea? Because your approach is very different than, than most people's approach. I guess if I have a big idea, Jordan, it's um, the primacy of representation in all kinds of therapy. And uh, that is to say whether we use words uh, which have imagery built into spoken language or dream images or hypnotic imaginings. Um, or narratives of different kinds. We are representing our felt reality in some other medium. Yeah. And along with that, uh, to the extent that that's generally true about communication and therapy, the uh, concept of the unconscious mind becomes important because at least traditionally we think of the unconscious as full of visual imagery as in dreams, symbols and metaphors in spoken speech and cultural um, artifacts and remnants and uh, propellants as uh, in a Jungian uh, idea about the psyche. Yeah. So Jung said that images are the reality of the psyche. So if there's a big idea, that's the big idea. <laughs> so what's like a concrete example of that? Oh, okay. So... I saw a guy some years ago who was a, uh, working as a mechanical engineer. And he came to see me because he was depressed. And I said, well, what's that like? He said, uh, every day I'm down in the dumps. So I asked him, what is it like down in the dumps? He said, you know what the dumps are like. It's all kinds of trash and rotting garbage. And I asked him if he could design um, some machinery that would transform the junk and the waste into energy. And he said, sure he could. So I asked him to do that, and he said, he told me the technical aspects of what he was doing in his imagination to create something to recycle the garbage into energy. I asked him, what are you going to do with the energy you've got generated? He said, I'm going to use it to uh, power a laser to cut through the steel plates that have uh, been put up between me and other people. Wow. And then at the end of that, that was a one session uh, 
conversation. At the end of the session, I said, how do you feel? He, he said, like I can breathe easier. So he started out down in the dumps and by using his own resources, his own intelligence, experience, his own intent, he ended up breathing easier. That's an example. I think that's such a wonderful example. Examples like that are kind of why I got into the field of psychotherapy. Yeah. You read, you know, you. I don't. I don't know what it what it is about working that that way, but it somehow it captures my e- imagination. That's exactly what it does, of course. <laughs> because instead of talking with this very nice and very bright man about psychiatry, his symptoms should it be called depression? What were the possible medical treatments? Uh, I just took his dream expression I'm down in the dumps and went right to the dumps with him except he was suddenly the expert in how you take a bunch of sludge and and get energy which is exactly what all therapists try to do with depression try to energize the person get him involved with something useful, uh, less self-absorbed and all the rest. So it was like a, a compressed treatment because it utilized the patient's own authority and um, experience, his resources, as leverage against the problem as he experienced it. I'm down with that. Yeah. I've um I've recently been reading a lot of research which maybe you shouldn't do that. I've recently been reading a lot of research. Too late though. I know. It's, it's what's what's done is done. And it's 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 about therapy and outcomes in therapy um and you know the the treatment size the treatment sizes, the treatment, the effect sizes that we see across treatments and all this stuff. Yeah. Um, and so when you tell that story, I think the question that comes up for me is, um, there's two questions. Do you see therapy as getting people unstuck? Or do you see therapy as um, teaching skills slash growth? And I say that because I think that there are two different ways to look at that guy sort of um, issue, right? It, it could be one of stuckness. And after he came in, he's able to deal with his problems in a in a new way. Or there could be some sort of um, deficit. I mean, I've I've known some people who come in and I think to myself, you just don't have basic, certain basic skills. There, there could certainly be that, Jordan, and people can get unstuck in all kinds of ways. You could be motivated by a, your grade school teacher to you know, 
put in more effort and things like that and get off the dime. Um, there are a lot of aspects of coaching that operate that way. Okay, let's, let's go boys, let's get that goal back. But I'm thinking of a different area of research that I read recently um, that Steve Miller was promoting, uh, a study of, of therapy effectiveness. This was done years and years ago by a guy who took teenage, at-risk teenage boys. I yeah, think. I remember this. I'm reading and, some of the same stuff, yeah. Yeah, he put them in front of different therapists. The best therapist got a 75% recovery rate. The other therapists, 80% of their patients ended up with schizophrenic diagnosis. And they all, all the um, teenagers referred to the effective therapist as, you know, the super shrink. So, if I think that it, it has to do with the therapist, as I do, that seems to be what the research shows, not the method and not these other uh, categories of experience, then I think the story I just told you is an example of using the best therapist, which is the patient himself, with his own abilities. Yeah. Now, he couldn't do anything in lots of areas of his life, let's say, but he sure as hell knew how to build machines. Okay. So, so the, the Ericksonian idea, or Dr. Erickson's idea of utilization is very important. Yeah. And if you're interested in research and you were my patient, I'd have you do research. Right. And then you, you would start to feel better because you're using your intelligence, verbal abilities, uh, insightful, curious intellect, um, and maybe you can even use the cone point to uh, <laughs> he was a teacher of mine Jack uh, Cone wow Be- before there were effect sizes he made a big thing out of it and I, I just saw in that same study that Steve Miller was citing uh, cone point two and remembered the, the guy is a very wonderful uh, forceful teacher Wow. You've had a lot of famous teachers. I have indeed. <laughs> You've had a lot of big name teachers. You, you, you want to get to be good at something, get good good teachers. Holy smokes. I have had that. I've had very good teachers and um, their main advice was was always to to be like yourself, not to try to imitate someone else. So uh I took that to heart, and I told you a story last time we talked about uh, what Yogi Berra said about when he was coaching, and there was a guy trying to imitate the stance of Ted Williams, but he, you know, wasn't making him a better hitter. And Yogi said, "If you can imitate him, don't copy him." <laughs> there's there's rarely a time I don't hear a Yogi Bear a Yogi Berraism that I'm like. That guy was like 
I get skeptical. I'm like, he couldn't have been that smart. Like, this, these people must just, must, must just attribute all good things to him. Because the things that he says were just <laughs> so good. All of them are just like, that's so smart. They might have made things up like they did for Satchel Page, his clever comments mm-hmm. and all his. But they sounded like Satchel would have made those comments. That's kind of like the Yogi Bearisms. They all do sound. They sound like something Yogi Bear would would say. That's right. And both those guys were great, great players. I mean, they could really bring it. So maybe they had a right to have a, a legend behind them. Maybe they did. I think that this this metaphor of sports, at least to me, is really relevant to counseling. Yes. Um, I had a buddy when I was back in college who played college level tennis mm-hmm. and we were talking one time and he was talking about how he kept faulting at the line you know he'd go for a serve and he'd default and, and he just and he knew um, that he could do it I mean, he'd been playing really well for three years and it was his senior year and he kept messing up and it occurs to me that you can have two types of problems, right? You can have the problem that he had where you know how to do this thing and you get confused, right? You get um, tongue-tied and tied in knots and and you can't, for whatever reason, you can't do this thing, this, you can't do this thing that you know that you physically can do. Yeah. And then there's the other kind of problem, the problem that I would have if I were playing against him of like, I just don't have that that skill. And yeah. And in in that situation, what I do need is a coach to coach me on like how to do the next step. And the coach has to be attentive to me as an individual, obviously exactly what you and I are kind of aiming at in the discussion not the things you're lacking as a tennis player so I don't know how tall you are but you're not 6'8 I bet (laughs) not yet (laughs) it's like some of the modern tennis players you know everyone's got different skills at the game so someone using an Ericksonian approach of utilization would say, well, tell me about your best shot. You know, there are great players who run around the backhand and others who go for the backhand, which is better. Depends how good your backhand is or your serve or how well you cover the court. There's a lot to tennis. And... uh, (laughs) um, I I played a guy I I was teaching tennis when I was a kid at summer camp and there was this guy who was a sports hustler also as a counselor there a guy named Hal Judas Hal said uh, let's make it interesting Eric let's play for a couple of bucks I thought, sure, Hal can't play, and indeed he couldn't play, but he 
couldn't miss a ball. He got to everything. He was quick on his feet, good hand-eye coordination. He kept hitting the ball back until I'd get frustrated and hit it out. And he took my three or four dollars at the time and smiled happily and walked away. So, you know, you have to know what you can do well is what I think. And and uh, another example from sports is whenever I can get a, a patient who has had any kind of performance experience, sports, music, uh, public speaking, whatever, I want to use that experience against the as leverage against the difficulty. So I may have told you this story, but uh, a woman was taking the bar exam and she was having all this kind of trouble and that kind of trouble and she'd failed it once or twice, but she was smart and she'd studied hard. And I found out she'd come within a, a modest number of points of passing. So I knew she could pass, that's important. If I know you cannot serve, you know, for some physical reason, then I can't teach you tennis with the serve. But she had been a competitive high school swimmer. So then the therapy consisted in my asking her, tell me about how you get off the blocks when the gun goes. And what do you do if you're a couple of strokes back of your competitor and you're approaching the wall? She told me. And I said, that's how you do it. The bar exam is not a personal contest. It's a competitive exam. They will pass a certain number in the state of California of the number taking it. You want to be out ahead of the other women. Because she knew how to do that. She wasn't afraid to win or touch out ahead or put in effort. And like all athletes, she wasn't afraid, oh my gosh, if I, if I splash on one stroke or get the breathing wrong, I'm doomed. No. All athletes make mistakes in the course of contests. Yeah. So they, what they have to learn is make the mistake and take the next stroke whether it's a tennis stroke or a swim. So that's how I want to talk to people in therapy when I can. Yeah. I don't want to hear about their problems because A, I'm not interested, and B, it doesn't help to analyze problems and then try to leap between buildings and, and land in good performance. Can't be done. In fact, golfers who think about their problems are, are said to have a, a problem by doing that. They're, they're swallowing the apple, they're choking up. They can't hit the three-foot putt. So to get them to do that, you have to remind them of what they already know, not give them some new information. Not give them some something new? Yeah. Professional golfers have hit but successfully from the time they're eight. So I want to remind them, how do you do it? And have them teach me. If you have a three-foot putt, how do you line it up? Tell me the, the process experientially. Because everyone knows if, if you're 
kind of following the procedure that works, you can be less self-conscious. That's how we all talk. So that, that's, I guess, the, if you like, the big idea is that the best expert is the patient himself. Uh, you said something that I have known, but when you said it, you said it in a way I had never heard, and I'm not sure what to do with it, so I guess I'll just talk talk to you about it, because I think that I've I've always heard that um, whenever you're you're learning something, you basically go from like seeing someone else do it to doing it yourself to teaching someone else how to do it and when you get to that final level teach someone else how to do it that's when you know you've really learned it for yourself right like yes. so if you really want to learn something else if you really want to learn something you when you get to the level where where you can teach it that's when you've mastered your own learning and you know that you have and everyone knows that what you've just said is generally true. Kids know it. When they can teach another kid spelling or something, they feel proud and competent. So that's all I'm trying to do in therapy. I'm trying to get the patient to teach me how he does things well, rather than me to teach him what his mistakes are. And, and by the way, it's, it's, it's basic to all kinds of teaching, as you said, but we took our, our um, poodle puppy, Esme, who's about four months old, to puppy class today. And it was magical. The teacher said, okay, don't go toward the dog. Don't shout, don't be forceful, don't say the dog's name over and over. Do this. Take the treat, look at the dog, say the dog's name. When the dog looks at your face, give the treat. That was one thing we did. Second thing, don't go toward the dog, have the dog come toward you. So the first thing we did, we took a treat and tossed it and said, find it. Dog runs and finds it. Our teacher said if you want to get the dog to the door to use the toilet outside, just toss it in the direction and then go towards the spot she's in and toss it again and finally she'll be out the door with a series of rewards for things she already knows how to do, like run for a treat. Yeah. And I thought it was fabulous. All the puppies had a good time. All the owners felt relieved. And we learned all these things in about a half hour. Yeah. A friend of mine was over today. She said how, how she uh, learned from a, a teacher to teach puppies and it was through being stern and having a strong tone in your voice and insisting 
And I told her what our teacher had said, and she said, boy, I wish I'd learned that. Because it's, it's easier. Yeah. No, I think you're right. I've developed a minor fascination with animal trainers. Oh, yeah. Good. Because they they seem to... I mean, first of all, I think the inside's mostly bogus. And um, I think that the way people move and what they... And how they act is probably, you know, ninety percent of where the where the good stuff is. And animal trainers seem to work on that level solely, and they get really incredible results. Yeah. I'm sure you've heard of Monty Monty Roberts, the the horse whisperer, and he's just. I saw the movie too. Wow, yeah. he's magical. That was great, and his magic is he doesn't force anything. He uses the behaviors the horse already has to shape. Um, a relationship really yeah and that's exactly what a guy like Milton Erickson did because uh, he grew up on a farm watching animals he has all kinds of stories about a guy who knows how to scratch a pig or you know do other things in the natural world that where you can't use language to explain but where you want changed behavior and close feeling relationship between the rider and the animal or the owner and the puppy. How, how many sessions do your people usually come, come for? Um, between one session and decades. between no-shows and forever. <laughs> so I'll give you an example of a, a case. I, I gave a presentation to my uh, practice group, the Medicine Institute of the Bay Area, and I called it Seven Difficult Cases in the Manner of Dr. Erickson. And there were two cases based on promises, two cases that began with threats, two cases that were doorways to reality and a case called take three counter tenors and call me in the morning. So the, the case of a promise was this. A young woman came in to see me for a couple of sessions and then she was moving out of the state. And in those days there was no internet and so I thought, well, I'll never see her again. And I had this fearful feeling that she might be suicidal, which I don't get much or very often, but with her I did. She was young, attractive, and depressed in a certain way, I guess. And I was worried. So I, I said to her, I want you to promise something to me. Down the street, there's a shop that sells old postcards cheap. When you leave here, I want you to go and buy a bunch of these postcards. And then I want you to promise to send me a postcard every week in perpetuity. And on the postcard, her name is Julie, I want you to write, 
Dear Eric, I'll address it to me at my office. Dear Eric, Julie is a beautiful woman and sign your name and send it every week in perpetuity. Do you promise? She said, yes, she did. So every week for two or three years, I would get a postcard. She used up the picture postcard. She started making them herself. Said, dear Eric, Julie is a beautiful woman. She signed her name and sent it. After two and a half years or so, I got a postcard that said, dear Eric, Julie is a beautiful woman who's not in the least depressed anymore. Couple more. And then the final postcard, Dear Eric, Julie is a beautiful woman who has met a wonderful man and is about to get married and who won't have to send you postcards anymore. That was the therapy. And I tried to take from the ineffective canons of therapy the idea of making a promise that protects your life. But you know, people want to do that with their patients or, or family members who are suicidal and say, promise me you're not going to do anything on Uncle Harry. But it's, it's an ineffective promise. But everyone knows the idea of a promise. If you get the right promise, even little kids can keep it. So I asked for a promise forever. And she agreed. Yeah, the implication. Yeah. Have you talked to her since? No, this was many years ago. And I don't know what happened to her except she got married and didn't kill herself. Yeah. Because she wasn't in that kind of dark... Uh, depression or however she would have called it. How much of that... Well, let me ask you this. Can I play devil's advocate? You can indeed. I wish you would. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not usually Satan, so this is a, this is a, new, this is a new feel for me. Okay. Um, I'll take that into account and give you a... <laughs> if you're not sinister enough. <laughs> Please do. Please do. Uh... How, how, like, how do you know that um, that she met somebody? Because she wrote to me. So you trust her at that? That's fair. Well, I trust her because she wrote all these postcards I asked for. Yeah. You know, if somebody gives you a nickel a week forever, you'll have a lot of money. <laughs> and what about the and she didn't blink at the in perpetuity. If she had said, well, I can't really promise to do something forever, mm -hmm. I would have said, well, how long can you promise for? Because I need this. But, but it wouldn't have been as good. The, the real um, suggestion in the hypnotic sense passed right by the way you'd hope it would. Yeah. Damn. Will you love me forever? is a, a plaintive cry in, in many relationships. And it's hard to convince the person, yes, I will love you forever. But if the person volunteers to do something like 
in this case, and, and does it week after week for a couple of years, you figure, okay, that's good. It's like, it's well, it seems to me to be the same type of implication from, um, I'm sure you've heard of this, or you've read this part, but Erickson had a, a guy who just came out, just got out of prison. He came to see him for relationship issues. Yeah. And Erickson knew that this guy would probably not stay in treatment, right? And so Erickson asked him, you know, to come and, I think, stay in the backyard for a few days. Oh, yeah. And the guy said, "Yeah." And he said, "Do, do I need to? Do I need to take your? Sh- do I need to keep your shoes in the house or something like that?" Like I said, "No." And of course, if he were going to run away, he'd need to have That's his right. shoes. And That's the- very similar to my kind of promise. And you're asking about shoes, but well, you're also asking about running away. I'm asking about promises while also asking about preservation of life for a lifetime. And, and the, the odd thing is, thinking like a hypnotist, you expect those things to slide in. You don't expect someone to say, hey, what are you doing? <laughs> because you've got their attention in a benign way, talking about ordinary things. What, what Erickson called the, the normal everyday trance. No special things waving, no sonorous voices. Just we're just talking, and somewhere in there, there's a suggestion that shifts through the relationship and what the person can easily do shifts their psychology in some future way. So it seems either casual or magical, but when Erickson got that guy in his shed, the guy wasn't going to go on the lamb. And he had promised. He said, no, I can have my shoes. And he stayed for a long time, I think. He, he was sleeping in the shed and yeah. doing stuff. So what about, um, I mean, she could have went to a new city, got a new therapist, got mm-hmm. in some Seroquel or whatever. You know what I mean? Like, she could have done all those things. Could have done. Um, that you... You know that she, that she might not have told you. Yes, and she may have done all that. I don't know. Yeah. So then, how do you pinpoint the the effective thing as the postcards? Ah, uh, identically as you would if you had said something to her in therapy, and you got communications every week for three years. And if you, if the issue that she had was that she felt bad about herself, didn't recognize her own uh, spirit or, or beauty or prospects, and you would try to convince her and say, you know, you're, you're really a beautiful woman and very intelligent. Look, you're a college graduate, blah, blah, blah. And she'd say, oh, no, look at this chin. My chin is too sharp. You'd get those conversations. I just assumed it. She had to say it, not me. I never said she was beautiful. I said, her name is a beautiful woman. That's what she has to write. So she's the author of that statement about her value, not me. 
I never said, gee, you got pretty hair or any of that stuff. And the fact that she kept the promise for so long is what... Yeah. And I think she would, just like she told me the news about her husband-to-be, she would have told me if, you know, I found a wonderful therapist here in Carolina, wherever she was, and uh, I won't need to write to you anymore. I, I took Seroquel and it was like a miracle drug. And I, I've even met a young man. I think we're going to get married. Thanks for your help and good wishes. Sayonara. Yeah. That would have been fine too. I would have been happy because I would have known she didn't suicide. Yeah. And I don't really care if you see 10 other therapists all at once. That's fine with me. I'm very interested that the person kind of um, unfold as herself. Yeah. Which generally means not harming oneself. Right. I think the thing about that case, and I think I think this is a this is a almost a selfish thing for me to say. I think the thing about that case that strikes me the most yeah. is that worst case scenario, you know, that session didn't um, change your life. You know? Yeah, could be. And it must have been very... In, something about you and her, that relationship, must have been very... Um, it meant a lot to her either way. And, yes. And I think that that's worth its weight, even if she went on and had another therapist. And you know, something about the way that you interacted with her, maybe the fact, maybe just the fact that you cared enough to say, I really want to know how you're doing, you know, and I think that you're great, and I want to hear from you for as long as I can. You know, that's all implied. Even that alone seems to have meant a lot to her that it you know it kept her from doing something worse yeah and she and in fact helped her hang on till she did something much better right. but i think also the again thinking like a hypnotist the repetition from oneself not as a, a set piece that somebody gives you and said i want you to say this you know, you're a beautiful woman, say it to yourself. But it wasn't done that way. It said, here's what I want written on the card. I want you to send this to me forever. You send to me a statement of your value forever. That, I, I think, uh, unconsciously can be effective in the way you said. You know, as, as though you'd say, kid, I, I want to hear from you as you go through the grades. You're in third grade now. You're going to be in sixth grade before you know it. And we won't be seeing much of each other. I'm on the other side of the country. So how about it? And if you, you know, let me send me those report cards. You're saying that that's the same thing? Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. Showing a, a younger person that or at the time we were probably the same age, but that you care about them. 
and they came to you for help, mm -hmm. inspiration of a kind. So I said, okay, here's, here's what will help in that sense. Yeah. You keep track with me and keep sending me these statements of your value as a woman, and then we'll see. Yeah. And do it forever. And do it because you promised. I had a situation um, that was similar in implication to that. I had a friend of mine who asked me to talk to her daughter. Her daughter was having some panic issues with stuff at school. Mm -hmm. And I told her a story and we talked about it. And then um, the next day I sent her a letter. Yeah. And on the outside of the letter, on the envelope, I wrote, um, TV opened when you need it the most. Nice. And I may have phrased it a little bit differently, you know, to, 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 to be open on the day when you absolutely need it the most, something along those lines. And I follow up with her about once a year. And mom says, yeah, she hasn't opened the letter yet. She's, she always looks at it and says, I don't need it that badly yet. It's not, I don't, I don't need it the most yet. Yes. Which, of course, was intentional for me because I wanted her to have that continual reaffirmation of, I have this resource from a moment in time that was very powerful to me, but only when I really need it. So maybe I can make it through this for... It's beautiful. And so she keeps going back to that. Yeah, it's beautiful. And, and it's like this uh, idea when sometimes when people are taking medication or something, you could tell them to keep it in their purse or in their pocket. Oh, which reminds me I have to. <laughs> um, boy. A little late, but within the window. Um, so, excuse me. Yeah, take your time. Mm. Yeah, so, so that it's there if you really need it. And that it's just beautifully framed it's like a container full of feeling that you gave to that person and whatever is in the thing doesn't much matter they'll make something of it if they ever need it they open and say oh was Jordan gave me that which people do all the time they think of someone dear to them and it keeps them going another hundred feet or something in very difficult times yeah. um, so I like that that's, that's good therapy and it's simple enough that the person infuses it with her own thoughts feelings, ideas and, and that, therefore it has, its, it has more power even than you're uh, giving it yeah. but, but the giving it is important I was told this by a patient that um, who I, and I can tell you the story because it's cute. She came in one day, it was part of a long story, but 
There's a woman in her 50s living alone, very literate, very eccentric, and with a very abused background. So she comes in one day holding a, a scrap of wood, like from a woodworking shop, and she looks very guilty and she says, I stole this from the woodworking teacher's scrap bin. I steal things. I don't know why I do it. But when he's not looking, I take this piece out and bring it home. And then she, I had this old desk in the office. She says, and I like your desk. I'd like to steal that desk. And in those days, we had a Polaroid camera in the bottom drawer. So I took out the camera, took a picture of the desk, and said, here, this is for you. Let me just pause, because I think people listening to this have to realize that a Polaroid is a camera that gives you an instant photo. <laughs> I don't know if people know that anymore. Yes, it's like a steam engine. <laughs> it's like a steam engine. <laughs> <laughs> and so like you gave her the photo. Yeah. So I gave her the photo, and later she said, "The stealing urge has re- the the stealing um, urge has remo- or the stealing idea or something has removed itself from my urges. Shouldn't feel like stealing anymore." She said, "It was your picture." I carry it with me. It took the place of the stealing. It was magical and funny. And then she said many other things about it. She she just she said I take I carry the picture with me and the story. And that she felt more normal because of this. So you and I would say that the relationship with the person who's isolated, suffering, scared. Uh, resentful, whatever, uh, down, is like a, a life preserver. But it's not like junior life saving where they said to well, if they make a lot of fuss and try to climb on you, take them under and bring them back up subdued. This is where nothing much seems to be happy. You say, here, use this if you ever need it. It's like break this glass in case of fire. So I like, as you do, these simple sounding metaphors, which everyone understands without explanation. Use this if you really need it. When I was a kid, uh, uh, my sister and I were given a gift by my grandmother of silver dollars. And she said, if you ever need it, keep this and if you ever need it. And I still have the silver dollars and I gave silver dollars to my grandsons. I don't know what a silver dollar would buy. They weren't very valuable even then, but I'll tell you, the feeling of it is like the one that you provided. Yeah. Use this if you really need it. But all the while, you have the backup of this loving person. 
who's thinking of you. And as you said, then the person himself might decide, well, hell, I can make it another day. You know, I can get through this. This is hell, but he's got my back. Do you, for a long while, I gave a lot of thought to how to replicate um, those sort of interventions. Mm. Do you give a lot of thought to that? No, I, I don't think they can be replicated. <laughs> well, see, you, you can't, you could, as a method, say to someone, well, here's this, it'd be like um, uh, the miracle question. Miracle question, you know, is uh, something everyone can use. But it was an original uh, invention with a particular patient, of course. But everyone can use it. Mm-hmm. But I recently read that Elliot Connie, I don't know if you know him, he's a narrative therapist. I, I thought he was solution-focused. Yeah, solution-focused. So He's done a lot of webinars recently. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So he's a very lively, bright guy, and uh, he said recently, I didn't read his thing but he, or, or listen to it, but he said he's not going to use the miracle question anymore. Really? And it's, it's true that you can think about what works and use it. And in, in my talk, I, w- I was... I gave two examples of promises and two of threats and two of reality, but it's still important as a therapist to look at each person as an individual, even if you find yourself using the same offer, I think, because you... You, you wanted to have verisimilitude in the relationship. It's got to feel real. And those best things come up like the miracle question must have for Insu Kimberg to just feel desperate herself and say, well, listen, suppose a miracle happened and you wake up tomorrow without an urge for alcohol. What, what clothes will you take out of your closet? What will you have for breakfast like that? I think, I imagine, I haven't read the story, but I, I imagine those wonderful things happen in desperation when you don't know what to do. Yeah. I think and then you could use them again, I, I'm sure. But yeah. I think that you're, I mean, I think you're highlighting a very important thing that I wouldn't, I wouldn't, anyone listening to this, I think, could get the wrong idea. I do not believe in using interventions like that um, with every person. Yeah. You know, I, I think, especially with things like the miracle question, they've come to be used um, outside of context. You know what I mean? Like, I think that there's a context that makes those questions make sense. And I guess for me, what I'm looking more for is like, what are the 
themes in a in a certain context that make that that made this really really work. Um, yes. How do they fit with the conversation? You can ask in a right. simplified way. Right. Because for some people, you'd think of the miracle question in two seconds, and others you might think and say, "Ah, this guy is so hard bitten. He's had such rough experiences." He's going to spit on this question, right? And so the question that I've that I asked myself for a very long time was, how do I know what, what situation this one is? Is this the guy who's going to spit on this question, or is this the? I, it's funny because I actually did that with this with the miracle question about three or four years ago. I went yeah. and I would I wouldn't ask it every time, but whenever it did work, um, I journal about it. Wow. And I, I kind of, I, I found some stuff that I thought was interesting, um, but yeah. Hmm. I want to also touch on something that you said last time, and unfortunately, sure. that last one got lost. You, you talked about the importance of going the extra mile with with clients. Yeah. Kind of going above and beyond. Yeah. I again. Dr. Erickson is a guide to this thing, and we may have talked about, uh, oh, like he had a case where a guy came in who was uh, very self-effacing and didn't value his own work. But he was he was a carver of ironwood, and uh, ironwood animals and birds and stuff, and ironwood is notoriously as the name implies, difficult to carve. It's very hard to do. But the guy was saying, oh, I'm worthless crap, I can't do anything. Erickson asked to see the man's work. The guy, you know, said, here, you can have it, kind of thing. Erickson said, can I borrow this bird, let's say, overnight, and, and we'll meet again tomorrow. The guy said, sure, keep it as long as you want. It's not worth anything anyway. Erickson took the bird and carved a copy of it. And, you know, if you carve that stuff, you end up with bloody fingers because it's so hard to do. And so he, and he brought the bird back to the guy the next day that he had made and his own bandaged fingers. And the guy knew how much work it took. That's that's a way to do that. To um, there's another Erickson story that's very telling from his early work in a psychiatric hospital, where he was assigned to give psych, uh, to give uh, electroshock to a depressed patient. <clears throat> So he called the woman into his office and he had put a a mattress on the floor and he stood in front of the mattress, took the um, electrical stimulation paddles at the uh, level that he was going to apply them to her and put them on his head and fell back onto the mattress. And the next time he had to raise the amount for some reason, he did the same thing. He, he put the increased electrical charge at his own temples. 
So, you know, somebody who will do that, somebody could follow into battle. Yeah. So I, I do think very highly of that when it's possible. It's not always possible. And, um, but where you would share some of the distressing circumstance, uh, it's very compelling to, again, to people who feel isolated or desperate. Yeah. Huh. Reminds me of an idea I heard not too long ago called costly signaling. And it's the guy I was talking about, like that's why romance works in all the movies. Huh. The the hero has to signify to the other person, like, this is how far I'm willing to go, and that's how you know that it's true. Yes, exactly. And I, I've done things these are mild enough versions like um, saw a young woman who had trichotillomania you know the hair pulling thing and I said I'd make a deal with her I'll stop fussing with my beard and mustache if you'll stop you know hurting your hair and she did and her friend asked her what how come you're letting your hair grow in? And she said, we made a deal. So, you know, sometimes. I've also gone on diets with patients, even though I'm not fat. And uh, it can be effective. Again, it shares their difficulty in a symbolic way. I don't have to lose 50 pounds or whatever the patient did. But damn it, I was going to suffer on behalf of her attempt. And uh, so, yeah, I, I believe that where you can, it's not a bad idea. Because you would do it for a friend or a kid. Huh. It's a version of saying, we'll do this together. I am my way, you and yours, but we'll both do it. I'm, I'm going to struggle with this hair pulling thing because I do it. And she already could see, you know, I'm like this on my own beard automatically while I'm talking and as you are too. So she knew I meant it. And then I had to find a way. It's, it's also good research, Jordan, because you have to find a way to do this thing that you're blithely suggesting to the other person. So how are you going to do it is very difficult for you as it is for him or her. So I kind of like that. Uh, only in, in certain spots. You know. Yeah. And not every day because nothing works every day. <laughs> That's It's funny, when I asked you that question, I thought you were going to talk about something else. And I'm glad what, that I asked you. What did you think I was going to talk about? I thought you were going to talk about... Um, 
doing something outside of session for the client? You know, um, I was. I did it out of session. Yes, I mean, and that's that's <laughs> true. I guess I can't think of a of a good example, but like, um, I, I guess I think about some of the Ericksonian stories where he would take clients out to eat, you know, or send oh, them yeah. or send them letters after session, or um, you know arrange a situation that they didn't know that they would be in to give them a new experience. Yeah. But I like Those the suffering things to do better though. Yeah. And and also because most of my patients are therapists, um I'm more likely to uh have to consider their language and their approaches to things because they can be very cynical about change and uh, <laughs> very, you know, determined that certain kinds of language is the only appropriate language and they know what's what. And I mean, it's not a bad thing. It's just, it's hard to su- surprise them. No, that's funny. I, um, man. <laughs> just that alone I feel like is incredible because I, I mean I think about yeah man most therapists even for, even for myself I I don't know I couldn't go see anybody <laughs> like, like you know what I mean like you'd have to have and they, and they couldn't do they couldn't do they couldn't just do certain things I'm like ah, that, 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 that doesn't work I, I would be very skeptical of many many therapists yeah, they're, they're, therapists in therapy are, are all like teenagers. Right? <laughs> you don't want to hear what you have to say. I'm caricaturing, but it, it's a little like that. And, and can, But importantly, they're extremely grateful if something does change because they don't believe in it. Oh, I bet. I bet. So when their lives get better, if we manage it, they're very grateful, and they send their friends and all this stuff. Because <laughs> it's it's hard out there. Yeah. It's, all lives have, have areas of great hardship. Yeah. And uh, and you know, thinking athletically again, most of the time you don't make it. Whatever the it is, you know, the high pole vault or the batting three hundred, or they'll make it. And, well, and these, Serena Williams, right? Oh, Serena! I felt so bad for her. Best player, pound for pound, I think, arguably, yeah. period. But she, and and it was because her coach cheated. Her coach cheated? Yeah, he gave a signal and the, and the umpire saw it. You're not supposed to coach the player during the match. Mm. It's an old rule in tennis, and her coach did a thing like this with his fingers. And, you know, it's like the equivalent of steal, um, you know, stealing signs with a binocular in baseball. Was that not supposed to? And she was caught, and she she was embarrassed I think 
and she made a fuss and then she did something else that was really against the rules and they took a game away from her and sort of imploded. And she and the young woman she was playing liked each other and, and the young woman had Serena as her heroine. Uh-huh. This 20-year-old woman from Japan. So, Serena will win more. Yeah. I didn't know about all that. I just felt bad for... Um, I feel like she's got. I feel like she's gotten a lot of flack, which to me is just unnecessary. Oh, she, has. she has. Yes, she lost. Acted acted immaturely, but you know, let it go. Don't keep pouring it on. She acted immaturely because she felt horrible, like not because she. That's <laughs> what I. Think. No, she's usually very um, courteous. You know, she'll throw a racket and stuff. She's she's fiery. But you know, so was John McEnroe. He would he'd argue with the chair umpire and curse and stuff. It was bad form. Yeah. And uh, again, it depends how you think about tennis. But it's, uh, all I can say is that all the African American players have had a very tough time of it. How are they supposed to act if they act like McEnroe? They'll get booed. They, they won't be seen as being fierce competitors. And if they act like, uh, you know, s- sweet people and formally play the game right, that won't help them be competitive. So it's hard. And uh, women players, too, to, to get equal court time with the men at big tournaments is a whole big fight. So all of that is is kind of woven into people's lives. And another thing Erickson did very, very well was to take account of people's actual culture and uh, ancestry and life experience. Because that gave him a lot of leverage in their lives, which he wouldn't have had as a stranger. He was anthropological. So we're coming up on our time. Okay. And I wanted to ask you one last question. Sure. Who do you... I guess it's a two-part question. Who do you like in the field, or where do you see the field going? Uh, Well, the field is going toward... um, somatic focus. And, and uh, dealing with trauma in the, more in the unconscious, the body, uh, emotions, and um, actions, too, to do something different. And uh, I think all of those important modern therapists who deal with trauma are are making a lot happen in the field. So I would say that's where it's going. Um, And in couples therapy and um, toward a very um, brusque kind of straight up, straight talking kind of business 
which is pretty good. Uh, depends who does it, right? Some people are good straight talkers. Other people are better being crafty or even um, demure. I, uh, my psychotherapist, one of them, uh, was a Jungian analyst, and she didn't say anything. And she was a very good therapist for me. And uh, she was a state champion tennis player, lovely and, and graceful person. And, uh, oh, she, yeah, I, but I, I only remember one or two things she ever said in several years of therapy. So they were effective. Hey. Uh, so, and I tend to be a very talky therapist, uh. but it, that's the other part of training therapists, find out what you do well, and, and that becomes the psychotherapy. If, there, if it turns out that somebody like Michael White is like you, or was like you, I wouldn't be wildly surprised. And so that that kind of thoughtful talk, or like Douglas Clemens, uh, these tall, quiet, thoughtful people, and so you would be drawn to them, but also could um, learn from them because it, they, it would, might suit your temperament. Um, but if you like, you know, fomenting drama, you could even be like Moreno, a drama therapist. That's a whole different thing, or, or do uh, constellation therapy, which is wonderful. But if you, I, I think, um, I, I try to see therapists Again, like looking at athletes, what's their best position? Mm. You know, Yogi should have been a catcher, he was. <laughs> so I don't know. He could have been a pitcher, he could have been a hitter, better as a hitter and fielder with a strong. Because um, it's easy then to say, well, you, you seem to me thoughtful and, and uh, whimsical and, and observant. So let's, if, if you were starting out and said, well, who's like that? Oh, Harry Stack Sullivan, read him. Mm -hmm. He's not alive anymore. Um, uh, Michael White, because he, and, and David Epstein. It's very impressive men who were thoughtful about uh, power relations in, in the world. And, I seem to have uh, been a patient of very quiet therapists. <laughs> so, a guy you've never heard of who wrote a very good book about therapy, Herbert Zucker, was my therapy teacher in, in college. And I'm in graduate school at NYU. And uh, he was very, very good, very experiential. And uh, he would have people bring work samples in and 
you know, this was in the 60s. He, he did. In the 60s? Yeah. He was Sullivanian by training, and uh, but he had this way of doing something I really like because I'm very visual in my um, thinking. He would have people describe the scene they were talking about, and he'd say things like, so which side of the table was she sitting at when she took the cigarette out of her bag? Things like that, so you could visualize it. I loved it. I, I thought it was so compelling to have a real image as close as possible to what the person was experiencing in an interpersonal context. And I, since I see things that way, I, I like that. <clears throat> and um, a man who didn't live long enough, my dear friend Don Wood, was a marvelous therapist and a very powerful person, though he himself was paraplegic from an accident. And uh, he could do some pretty interesting things in groups and individual therapy. So uh, that's how I would do it. I said, well, the, the guy is very fast. He can't hit for power, but he can hit for average. So let's, and he, I, I think I want him in the outfield. He's got a good arm. Yeah. That kind of thing in, in assessing therapists. So I would, I would try that. Thank you. So where can people find more about you if they want to follow up? So uh, they can look on my website, um, MiltonHErickson.com. That's the website for my institute, and uh, me and my colleagues are there. And uh, we have a, uh, a YouTube channel called Mahiba Fall that they can get to through the website or on YouTube. And uh, there are some um, videos. Awesome. But that, that would be a place to read about what. Uh, a modern Ericksonian therapy and its practitioners do. Thank you. Well, Eric, I've enjoyed this so much. Thank so, you. Thank you, Jordan. It's been a pleasure. Take care. <laughs>